A civilization's state of development is most often readily apparent in its buildings. The capacity for stepping beyond the limits of nature and forging into the realm of modernity is enshrined in the time capsules that are major works of architecture and infrastructure. When historians and anthropologists trace the path from prehistoric societies to today, they invariably look to the quality and sophistication of the earth, stone, and rock monuments that serve as milestones in their journey to today. What has consistently stood out is the importance of water infrastructure in all great civilizations, from the flooded, terraced farming techniques in Chinese rice fields to the Roman aqueducts. Upon examining America, one notices the astonishing amount of decay that is set in to its water management system, from the municipal water contamination in Flint to the breaking of sewer lines in Seattle, raising the question if any of this will even be around to examine for future generations once the final proverbial dam breaks. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been time, dear. Hello, and welcome to the Miss the 20th Century Podcast. My name is Hans Launder, and tonight I am joined by uh, two very esteemed gentlemen. Uh, we have Mr. Adam Smith. Hey, everyone. And Mr. Hank Oslo. Hi. Uh, I believe Adam has a couple items you'd like to run by our listeners very quickly before we uh, get off to the races here. So, Adam, why don't you take it away? Yep, real quick. I had a couple of very generous Bitcoin donations from the wallets, starting with the character 1M5X and another wallet with 1KG9. Thank you so much. Uh, We all very much appreciate it. We... uh you know, I, I should say that we have a very loyal listener base. Uh, we actually made a lot of good friends out of our listener base. Uh, I was a listener, but, you know, before I kind of joined the show. So we you know, really want to thank you guys. Uh, your your money goes towards hosting. It goes towards basically keeping us going. Uh, this is something we kind of do on the side, and uh, we, we really appreciate loyalty the help you've given um the friendships we've made a lot of the things that have come out of deciding to do this over the last couple of years so uh, as always thank you we're very gracious um, and i think we'd, uh, we'd like to get started originally uh i had had an idea a while back um, about a show regarding the hoover dam uh, the hoover dam in a lot of ways represents a an ascendance, or it was supposed to represent an ascendance to a higher form of Americanism. You can see that in, in the, the artistic style. If you've ever been there, uh, many like the internal uh, areas, 
you know, the maintenance areas and, and the lobbies and the hallways where the work was actually performed by, still performed by engineers. It's a throwback to an art deco 1920s and 1930s America, uh, sort of a, an age where um, engineers and chemists and laborers and mechanics were, were seen as Promethean entities. Uh, and there's actually like a great DuPont ad, uh, I think from maybe late 1910s, early 1920s, talking, you know, with like a chemist holding up um, a, a new solution and uh, something like th this mo this man is the new prometheus and this was this kind of trickled down through the culture at that point and the hoover dam was supposed to represent this daring way of not only sort of attempting to revive the american economy but try and do things which no one else was daring to do uh, test methods which had been regarded as uh, uh dangerous and uh totally unproven and potentially uh, you know, could result in the deaths of many and also in many ways represented a real understanding that the only way uh, forward for the United States in, in sort of claiming the Southwest and claiming the Western United States for irrigation, for population, for industry was to solve this ever-present problem since the early American uh, founders of the country had explored the region and tried to understand its dynamics tried to settle it many times. Uh, the only way to actually corral this, this area into what it's actually become, which is a huge and very intrinsic part now of the American economy, the American way of life, none of that would have been possible. Some scheduling constraints and, and real life stuff. Uh, couldn't get uh, a specific book that I really wanted on the topic in time. Uh, couldn't really get the show together. So we're doing something that I had also wanted to do, which is just more of a discussion and look at the history of water in the United States. Uh, what role that water has played from a political context, um, from an infrastructure context, from a you know historical progression. I think that the two of you would agree that water is sort of the primary foundation or one of the primary foundations, so to speak, of any possible civilization. If you don't solve your water problem, uh, you just you cannot do anything. I'm thinking of um, in ancient Persia, there were uh, a lot of there was a lot of work done over hundreds of years to develop practically just below ground, uh, sort of rudimentary aquifers to deliver water from the highlands and to the to certain parts of the plateau or the low areas, which allowed for irrigation, which allowed for uh, community life, allowed for building uh, the Persian Empire, and which kind of goes into the um, long history of the Persian Empire and, of course, the uh, long history of Iran. Uh, you kind of agree that if you don't have water, you don't really have anything to begin with? I agree with that. I mean, there's many historical examples of bodies of water being critical for trade and transportation as well. But I think you're referring to fresh water for drinking and agriculture. And that's also yes. been true. And if you trace the origins of major cities, they're typically located on major bodies of water, whether it's a river or a lake or inland yeah, sea. And or transport. An yeah, and transport. transport is huge. Yeah. Like the U.S. Yeah. carried more freight by uh, canal and 
like if you add in canal and inland waterways, um, I think it's still very close to uh, rail. But if you just were looking at canals, it was well ahead until like the 1840s or 50s. Yeah, if you look at the Mississippi River, I mean, it basically drives the entire grain system of the United States and all the agriculture that goes on in the Midwest. If you took that the out... St. Lawrence Waterway. Yeah. Best waterway. I mean, particularly from like a climate perspective, the reason that like irrigation is important and if you have any sort of agricultural civilization, just because the rain is unreliable um, and if you're trying to maximize yield you need reliable access to water but even more so than that when you have some place uh, with the climate of the Middle East or the American uh, West and Southwest there's uh, sort of a, a fertility curve um, that's basically dependent on the difference between your daytime uh, peak and your uh, nighttime uh, lower valley uh, temperature. If you're growing a lot of plants, the ideal thing is for it to be pretty hot and bright during the day and fairly cool at night. So basically during the day your plants are growing and or during the day your plants are absorbing nutrients, they're absorbing sunlight, etc. And at night, they're sort of going through their actual uh, growth uh, phase. So like the, uh, the little um, pores like open and close, um, depending on the time of day, which makes basically the climate of Mesopotamia and the American Southwest optimal for growing just about anything. But the problem is that that sort of climate almost never has access to uh, sort of local fresh water of a, of a sufficient magnitude to enable agriculture. So you have to bring it in. You either have to bring it up or you have to bring it into the area by drilling a well or by having some sort of uh, aqueduct or irrigation or something. And if you do that successfully, like that enables a huge amount of output of things that um, are extremely commercially uh, valuable and also provide you with a lot of the uh, the sort of uh, non-bulk crops um, that, uh, you know, cash crops, truck crops um, that uh, you want if you're going to have like a kind of a balanced agricultural sector. So when I initially set out to do this, um, I thought, we should look at just general history of general American infrastructure and kind of pick out what regards to water. Um, and I looked at this book and I actually read through uh, most of it. And uh, uh, it's a book called The Road Taken, kind of a history of American infrastructure by uh, Henry Petrosky. And as you read it, I'm, I'm going to recommend that you actually don't read it because uh, it's not a great history. Uh, it's not very uh interesting in any way it's sort of random facts about a the author's life and then b uh random things in in infrastructure not even a real progression of the infrastructure not a real understanding of social or engineering dynamics um but there is an interesting part of the beginning where he talks about the history of this term used um 
and it's a big part of the modern political landscape. You don't go a day without hearing it if you tune into politics, which is the, the word infrastructure. Uh, it really has a, according to him, a, a more recent etymology. Like it really doesn't show up uh, till like 1927. Um, and that's odd because it, the idea of infrastructure for public works, as, as you might um, has always been a part of life for several thousand years now across any any uh, society or any uh, country. You know, state has done anything of value or importance. There's you have to you have to have infrastructure. Whether we're talking about rudimentary underground systems of delivering water, or old Iran, uh, or something as complex as the Hoover Dam, or complex as uh, the American Amtrak system. Uh, if you don't have those things, you just there's no functioning. You, know, you simply can't deliver resources. You can't deliver people to and from areas. You can't allow people to have a quality of life and kind of have some freedom where they move or what they consume. It's just simply not possible. Um, but the term itself doesn't really show up until the late 20s. And, and it shows up explicitly as a political, uh, a political term. You have to remember that uh, you know, well into... Um, in the 1930s, water or just infrastructure was a huge political problem in the United States. Uh, actually getting people to and from places had been proving to be very difficult, despite a lot of the advances that America had made in uh, its railway system and it, um, in delivering people through kind of road maintenance, through internal waterways, uh, sea travel, uh, obviously later by uh, airplane. This is always a huge point of contention. Was I can't get where I need to go. I can't get fresh water. I'm living in New York, you know, allegedly Boston, which is uh, in, in you know, 19th century and early 20th century, a, a mecca of, of, of the United States. And a uh, huge chunk of the population just couldn't even get clean water. Cholera outbreaks were common well into the 20s. And eventually this term starts to arise as a way of talking about all of this collective. And ever since then, it's always been associated with, well, we need to update, or we need more of it, or we need to deliver it to people that don't have it yet. Uh, so, you know, the most recent example being this stuff with uh, Detroit, or the, uh, the Flint, I'm sorry, Flint water crisis, where uh, a large chunk of the water delivery methods, a lot of these old, like, cast iron pipes and, uh, and lead pipes were being utilized to deliver water well past their their use date or their end of use, uh, end of life date. Um, I think some of them were constructed almost a hundred years ago, if not prior. And when you start to research this topic, you, you see that there's dozens of water main breaks a day in the United States, many of them small, but some are very large. In fact, one happened um, up the street from my house uh, two months ago. And it was, it must've poured water out of the street for a good six hours straight before anything was done. Try to calculate how many gallons of water were basically wasted on asphalt, uh, especially in, in this area of the country where uh, you know, water is sort of a precious resource. Um, this problem has always been sort of much more political, but uh, it becomes very popular, this term and this focus on infrastructure in the 50s. After the end of, the, of World War II, America is, is, is champion of the world, and 
the understanding is that now we can focus internally. And we have all these resources. We're the only big manufacturers left for making all this money. Let's really start to build up our internal infrastructure. And this coincides with some trends that had already been ongoing uh, before Eisenhower really institutes the national highway system in the 50s. There was a lot of work that was already being done towards that goal. He was just sort of the man who did two things, uh, got the military involved to make it happen faster and bullied the shit out of state governors and state assembly houses who were, you know, didn't want to work with other states on this, wanted to impose all kinds of internal tariffs, you know, going from state to state. Eisenhower basically was the man who killed, killed that, got the military involved, declared it a national security problem and built the national highway system. Uh, as well as that, you have a damming of American rivers, and obviously plays in the Hoover Dam. Uh, starting in 1935 until late 60s, uh, there was a real ongoing attempt to look at all the American waterways, especially the most um, the most dangerous or flood prone ones, and the ones near areas that were also drought prone. Uh, and look at how we could not only irrigate this water, but control nature itself, how we could prevent flooding, how we could prevent droughts, how we could turn, which is actually very nice soil in arid areas into good farmland and good living spaces and spaces for manufacturing and spaces for uh, defense research and all kinds of things. How do we accomplish that goal? And this goes back to a uh, an era in American history, uh, it was called the Great Reconnaissance. Um, it sort of flies under the radar in uh, sort of standard American history, it's not really talked about. Uh, it's not really talked about because um, the man who oversaw it in, in you know, uh, mid-1850s up to the 1860s uh, was one Jefferson Davis, who, as you know, became leader of uh, uh, the Confederacy. But Jefferson Davis, in particular, took huge interest in exploring the American Southwest and the American West in general. Uh, even well into the mid-19th century, the American West, in a lot of ways, was still much of a mystery. Huge chunks of it were still unexplored or were not very well charted. Uh, no one, you know, geology was emerging as a real field. The U.S. Geological Society had been established, but no one had soil samples or could understand how the rivers you know, flowed and, and what, where they flowed to and from and what the soil was like. Could we farm there? Could we explore it? And Jefferson Davis did a very simple thing and he basically uh, ended up using the lo logic of Eisenhower just about a hundred, you know, almost a hundred years to, uh, prior, give or take two or three, and said uh, it's a national security problem. It is a national security problem that we do not understand the soil, we don't understand these rivers, we don't know where people could be living in there, and we don't know where our railroads can go. And if there's ever a crisis, now that we have all this territory out west that we're settling, we would not be able to get our military out there. We would not be able to get people out there to do anything, uh, because much of the American society had been concentrated still up to this point east of the Mississippi River. Uh, so in this great reconnaissance era, Jefferson Davis and, and a lot of great men, uh, great explorers, great early geologists set out to map, chart, and take samples 
really understand the American Southwest and the Colorado River in particular. Um, so this, th- is, this is sort of following the footsteps of Lewis and Clark in the Northwest. Yes, yes, uh, in a in a much grander and much more complex scale. With and, and as, as Davis and others put it, there's a lot more at stake. Um, remember that we had just basically just fought Mexico in a war not not too long prior for control of this area. A huge, a, a very costly war that had that ended with the total invasion and occupation, temporary occupation of Mexico, and basically whisking away a huge third chunk of their claimed territory, which became the American Southwest, um, and much of the American West Coast as well. There was a very real understanding that we were already on a tenuous situation with this land. Uh, we're trying to settle it. People are settling it on their own. This is where the Mormons come in. This is when a lot of um, sort of either very rich or very poor people who were trying to either find new riches or were trying to accumulate as much cheap land as possible were buying up land or migrating to land and squatting and claiming it as their own. Uh, so larger and larger amounts of the American population are now at stake. And then they're at stake because they start to really understand the nature of the Colorado River, which is that the areas around it can flood and kill everyone and destroy all attempts at agriculture and rudimentary infrastructure, uh, or they can become very drought-prone, in which case the same things happen. Everyone dies, the, uh, the crops die, people abandon the infrastructure because they get the hell out of there, and uh, you're left without uh, you're really left without any any progress made on any investment. Up till you know, up to this point, no one really understood these uh, these rivers. But something else that I think we wanted that I would like to you know go in the direction of, and I'll leave much of the story of that till uh, till our next show, which will be coming soon, on you know, the real origins of the Hoover Dam and then the actual making of the Hoover Dam um, is just water in general in this country. The history of water, as, as Hank mentioned earlier, you can't, you really can't do anything without it. But uh, you would think that in a place, if any of you are familiar with uh, the country, especially on the eastern seaboard, you would think that um, water is not only uh, efflorescent, but it ought to be easy to manage. There are plenty of fresh waterways. Uh, and the water used to be very potable in this country, meaning that you could simply just go up and drink as long as it was running water. Your chances of getting sick were low. And uh, it's wet year-round. Droughts are somewhat uncommon. Uh, and they were especially uncommon uh, in early colonial America, especially in the 18th and 19th century. Droughts in the East Coast were uh, unheard of, or very, very small and light and, and not much of a big deal. Um, but how to actually deliver that water uh, became very, very difficult. And uh, I think a great deal of people um, had to spend a lot of time actually working very hard to get water to where it needed to be and how to manage it. So I'd like to start with uh, a man actually named Hans Christopher Christensen. He was the uh, really the first guy to create the first public waterworks in America, in, uh, in Pennsylvania. This was in 1755. 
So a lot of the early problems with water in America actually had to do with the American relationship with the British government and the British crown. Uh, developing local infrastructure up to that point, sort of a, a common point of contention in that the British crown uh, often refused to give proper financial support for these things. Uh, or if they did, they would ask for very, very heavy taxation of it, and then that money would flow directly back uh, into England. And it would not necessarily go towards building more infrastructure or improving or maintaining the infrastructure. This went for water, this went for holy roads, this went for, um, you know, even like uh, every, you come like to other, I think, things you call public utilities, like uh, defense forces or, or sort of maintaining just the public order of society it even happened to courts uh, a lot of these things were not well funded they weren't well maintained and, and colonial americans were forced to kind of do this on their own and find solutions on their own um, so it took a while to actually get the country up and running and it just so happens that around the time that really things kick off as hans christian christensen did in 1755 uh, by that point you know, about a hundred years had passed since uh, really a huge explosion in the uh, Anglo-American colonial population. And, uh, you know, it coincides with the revolution because at that point, they're very much self-sufficient. They've been solving these problems for a hundred years now. Now they're building their own public utilities. They're building uh, own infrastructure. They're maintaining it. They're maintaining their own court system. And Sure enough, within a couple of decades, they've decided to just leave entirely. They're doing everything on their own. But as that, uh, I think this is in, ah, and then in uh, 1772, uh, Rhode Island was the first state to really ch start chartering two private water companies uh, in Providence. And then New York City uh, did this as well, uh, I believe the same year. This gets to another issue that I think we should talk about that I've always wanted to kind of bring up on the show, which is there's this idea of chartering private companies. Uh, um, and Hank can correct me if I'm wrong here, but you know, the, in the past, corporations and corporate charters were meant to accomplish specific goals. It was not necessarily that corporations were sort of these legal entities under themselves the way they are now, which is more of a product of the oppressive era that sort of sprang up. Uh, out of the will of people to just do it, you know, do however they want and start delivering maybe new things. Uh, it used to be that you had to go to your government, especially in colonial America and then post-colonial America. You had to actually go and petition for a charter, and that charter would be uh, you know, looked after and administered by the state, either the municipal level or the state level, and they would determine if you would be renewed, if it would be continued, if you were actually fulfilling your project goals. And if your project goals ended, most of the time your corporate charter was uh, was terminated. Is that kind of how incorporation worked? Yeah, more or less. I mean, it was often associated with some sort of grant of monopoly. Um, I mean, the, the underlying idea being that limited liability which is the point of having a uh, a corporation as your uh, sort of uh, operating organization is an extremely valuable uh, grant. Like it, it essentially allows you to run up debts 
for instance, or to screw over uh, your shareholders or customers or whatever and flee the area with whatever funds you can embezzle. And that's you know something that was extremely common in a lot of uh, times and places in history. Um, so you didn't necessarily want to be handing these out willy-nilly, um, especially because there were much uh, fewer sort of uh, robust consumer protections because of the state of the legal system. Um, it was much more difficult for people who were screwed over by some unscrupulous entity uh, to uh, recover any sort of losses. So it was an extremely uh, rare thing historically, often concentrated around things like uh, these uh, infrastructure um, properties, like things like bridges were very common uh, to be granted as like monopolies to some concern. Um, with the sort of guarantee that you wouldn't, uh, the government would not allow a competitor to build a bridge like just upstream. That was one of the, that was like the the primary um, like factual case for uh, one of the very early like big Supreme Court decisions that everybody knows about. But yeah, you're, that's that's an accurate description. So, as this process started to unfold, uh, most water constraints, especially after the revolution had uh, had completed and the United States was a independent entity, were done through uh, private means. Now, as Hank was just saying, you basically grant a monopoly. You say, okay, go do this project. As long as that project is ongoing, you have that monopoly, you have that charter, and then you're done. Um, but this obviously wasn't a long-term solution to something needed to be long-term, which is long-term delivery of water. If you're Boston uh, and you show no signs of depopulating, all you show signs of are increasing your population and more people coming to Boston, especially after the revolution had ended, uh, you need a, a long-term way of solving this issue. And that's basically how we get public works in this country. There had been some early attempts at, at public works for uh, sort of pseudo, um, I guess, municipal, it'd be, it'd be hard to say in kind of a modern legal context, but like pseudo municipal level kind of public uh, offices, like firefighters. And actually it was Boston that uh, created like the first real, um, very real, very uh, complex water distribution system. It was primarily um, like stone tubes uh, connected with hollowed out logs, and it was gravity fed. So you know, use slight tilts in the in the tubing and the pipes along the way to you know, feed water to a central location, and then kind of manipulate water pressure from there. Then you can distribute that water. Um, but it was not assumed that this water would be used for drinking. It was assumed the water would be used for firefighting, which was a more pressing issue. Huge chunk of the country initially was out in small communities or farms. It was presumed you got your own water. You had to figure it out on your own. There was some work done in cities and in some areas collectively to you know build water distribution or find ways to deliver water to people. But uh, for a long time in this country, even well into the 19th century or 20, early 20th century, how you received water was totally up to you. 
And by up to, up to you means on you. That is your responsibility. If you're living in the middle of Manhattan in the late 1880s, well, not really your responsibility. You just pay the utility. That's when those that idea of public utilities were, uh, became large. Is in dense areas like Manhattan, uh, sort of dislocated from fresh obvious fresh water, uh, became unreasonable to assume that they would get their own fresh water on their own, or they build their own wells, or whatever. It was ridiculous. So that's when you know you have real public utilities start coming up and real water distribution systems using uh, cast iron piping predominantly, and uh, that coincides around the time with uh, you know concrete lined sewers and 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 paved roads and you know, we're building multi what's called kind of multi tiered infrastructure. So you have uh, let's say what appears to be just a street, but beneath it you have lined sewers using metal and, and concrete and stonework. Uh, you have pipes running through there, delivering water, delivering sewage, delivering whatever. Uh, then it, you, know, you have to start worrying about how you deliver gas, how you deliver all kinds of other... Um, I'll give the, the silly example, but if anybody's ever seen the movie Ghostbusters 2, they actually have to take a trip <laughs> down through the bowels of Manhattan, and you actually see the archaeological buildup over time of all these old pieces of infrastructure. There's gas, electricity, right. water, subways, and it's all bunched up and it's it's also indicative of the technology of the day obviously and the longevity of that technology so you mentioned cast iron pipes i mean those things last about 100 years but after that they do rust and you have to replace them and so that's gets into sort of uh the planning aspects of why a public works administration might be required because if you have everything going libertarian i mean there's no records of what these things were put in as you know hundred years ago, nobody knows, you know, the guy died, you know, 50 years ago. And so having it all centralized is actually pretty critical to maintaining the service levels that you need in a functioning city. Yes. And you mentioned something about like going all libertarian, you know, one of the, one of the common problems in a lot of my reading I've found, one of the, the main issues with this early attempt to sort of privately charter every single job uh, independently and privately charter delivery of services and, and not integrate a lot of this was that they, they couldn't they simply couldn't keep track of what was being done. It was impossible. Um, it, it was it was just simply undoable. It would have required a huge bureaucracy just to manage all of the various jobs and tasks that private companies are doing. And so the logic was, why don't we just roll this all up single entities? entities focused on general public works or public water and then you break down from there you have filtration you have wastewater you have delivery you have maintenance you know you have uh you know, raw engineering which is focused on actually building pipes themselves or con working with contractors very closely to build pipes and then going and installing them and checking them and making sure that they're you know, just asking people and hearing feedback as the population grew it became unmanageable to take this old approach and the new approach was obviously a hierarchical structure of public works. And water was, uh, I mentioned this before, a huge political problem. You could easily win an election in 19th century America or early 20th century America by talking about water. Easily. And you could also just as easily lose the next one 
if you fuck up or if you don't deliver. Because it was becoming such a problem well into the 1880s when these uh, a lot of these cities had exploded in size beyond what was ever conceived at these cities. You know, uh, now they had hundreds of thousands of people approaching millions of people. In their outlying areas combined, it, it was way too much. And this was around the time that a lot of work had been done into understanding waterborne disease, bacteria. Uh, a lot of that work was actually done back in Britain, um, but some of it uh, filtered back, filtered not, not upon, but filtered back into the United States. And uh, the assumption then was, well, these are problems with bad water, wastewater, improperly filtering water. These are problems, uh, these are just general environmental problems that didn't exist before because we weren't bringing this much water into the city. We weren't trying to process it all. We weren't trying to deliver it all. And there's also a huge ton of, now there's a ton of people who live in shanty towns or live in uh, uh, very run-down parts of town or town, parts of town that are not fully developed. And they're shitting in the water and there, there's no real uh disposal methodology there's there's no way of treatment and so they're destroying the local water supply mostly um, for themselves so that's why you have these common outbreaks of illness that are killing thousands of people annually and are debilitating uh, the functioning of these cities uh, and it wasn't really until the beginning of the 20th century that the ratio of of sort of semi-rural and rural to urban had flipped where you know meaning that uh by like i think 1901 or 1902 uh it had finally flipped and the american population was now majority concentrated in urban areas very much located on the eastern seaboard or the midwest uh, and this posed a huge problem especially in the eastern seaboard uh seaboard where uh mosquitoes are basically a way of life Bacteria in the water is, is very much a way of life. There's a lot of uh, weird endemic problems to water in, uh, in New England and in uh, the Mid-Atlantic that uh, were killing, as I said, thousands of people a year and uh, had actually ironically created a circumstance that allowed for the growth of the American Midwest and the American West because people were leaving these cities because there simply was not enough fresh water to go around. Uh, because a lot of these places were still attempting to do this, these one-off jobs of maintaining and building water infrastructure services. And, and none of it was cohesive, and uh, it ended up spurring the early growth of these areas, and then obviously the Hoover Dam and other uh, control methods of water resources in the West then allowed these areas to explode in their own population and their own agricultural production. Uh, and one of the interesting things is that there was a lot of legislation, mostly like harbor acts and waterway acts, uh, at the federal level and, and, and similar things at state levels. But there was very little work done, even until like the, I think the 1970s is when the Clean Water Act basically comes out, uh, establishing real standards for clean drink. You know what is clean drinking water, and in the 19th century, early 20th century, no one knew. And not only did no one know, no one really cared. No one was going to actually try and figure out how, okay, how do we create this very proper, uh, 
a universally agreed upon method of delivering water and what clean water is. Uh, no one could ever determine how, how do how do you actually figure that out? And uh, they, for a while, basically uh, tried to use chlorination in the late 1880s and like into the 1910s uh, in, in all kinds of methods of you know, really banky filtration. That, uh, I, I believe they still put really chlorine in the water. It's probably, yeah. Probably lower fluoride. Well, fluoride is a completely different mess, mm, but by your uh, filters. Yeah. Exactly. And um, this was a, this is actually part of the political equation of the progressive era. The part of the progressive era was well, shit. Uh, you know, um, have all these like new swarthy ethnics who are clamoring for water or whatever. Uh, let's chemical. Let's get our Promethean masters of science on it. And the idea was to pour raw chemicals <laughs> into the water supply. It was it was goofy. It was done at like uh, the early nineteen hundreds in America were a wonderful place. Yeah, it's like it's like it was, yeah, you know, it's probably good for you. Let's uh, let's put ten tons into the municipal water supply. They ba- so they ba- like it, at some level like they they didn't they didn't even really, really have central locations for water management. It was basically just a series of pipes from one place to another. And um, in a lot of in a lot of cases, they would they would go to a certain spot in the, like a, a pipe, a long running pipe, and they might have a hatch that they that was you know part of the original iron mold. Uh, they might not, and they'd basically say, "Okay, uh, we're going to crack this open, and we're going to." at this point of high, that we've determined of high water pressure and we're just going to dump the chemicals in the water it's like uh it's just about as crude as you can imagine and that's exactly what they did this was the progressive solution to water management was basically dump chemicals in the water upstream on the pipe seal the pipe back up and then we'll do this like every couple months and in theory, it should sanitize and clean out the pipe, and it should, you know, it should keep the water clean at its destination at these pooling grounds or these kind of rudimentary water storage areas or kind of, uh, water storage almost like wells or, or, or tanks. Uh, in theory, it'll collect there. It'll it'll keep the water pure for a while, and we'll have to do this again. Um, this was sort of early water management uh, or attempts at water management was purely chemical um and they were still not really clear on this relationship between standing water water that had been maybe standing for a while and then we could get it running again you know does that wipe out that obviously kills the mosquitoes but does it kill everything else it's kind of now associated with the water does it kill pond scum no idea no clue so they were doing all kinds of things like draining ponds and they routinely filled up in new england uh and in upstate new york uh and they routinely drain like small lakes um there's whole regions of upstate new york if you ever go up there they're basically the remnants of lakes that people live in now uh like tarrytown heights like there's areas around there that used to basically be like part of a lake that are is mostly gone 
And uh, that was drained out towards the turn of the century to just feed the growing uh, water consumptions of New York City. And in that process, you know, obviously it's like a standing lake. There's all kinds of, in, in upstate New York, so there's all kinds of stuff in that water that you really probably don't want to drink or, or touch. And uh, the idea was if we just move it at a fast enough speed with a high enough water pressure um, and pour enough chemicals in, it'll be fine. Uh, ended up not being fine, didn't really work at all. And they had, you know, you really start to see actual wastewater disposal systems, which is a big, which was part of the problem that they just were never addressing. And uh, you actually see real water filtration uh, start to kick in in like 1910. It took them, it took most of cities in the United States, this is all on the Eastern Seaboard, till 1910 just to figure out how do we get rid of all this waste? And how do we actually properly filter this water without pouring gallons of chemicals in it every few months? Uh, because that was not working and it was probably doing more damage to people. Uh, so kind of back towards the beginning a little bit. Uh, one of the ways in which, uh, this is actually a story of like how Chase Manhattan got set up, but um, Aaron Burr, who was the man that shot and killed uh, Shot and killed Alexander Hamilton under direct orders of uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson. And he was a uh, he was kind of a, a big wig in in New York State, and uh, he created what was called the Manhattan Company. And this sort of set the stage for how you create private private uh, private utility works or public works as we now think of them. Um, and incidentally, as part of this legislation, you. It, the idea was you create, a, you create a piece of legislation, you introduce it, and then they contract out and they find people who then create a corporation to do the job. Well, he said, if, if there's any leftover money from the budget, you can create a bank. That's basically how Chase Manhattan Bank was started. And uh, the idea was that um, they would deliver, they would find ways to deliver water to people in, in the state of New York, not just New York City. And again, it devolved into stone tubing, it devolved into early cast iron pipes or early metal pipes. Uh, in some cases, they were still using logs to stimulate gravity and to actually move water down hills or across, um, across flat places of land. And uh, it was a total disaster. A lot of these early attempts at, at like water movement were a disaster. People hated it and ended up just like you know, you could still do this at the time. You could just dig for your own well. You could just, if you know, if the this company failed, it wasn't the end of the world. You would just find ways to do it your, on your own. And, and that was part of the assumption was, hey, you know, we're trying this. Uh, it might not work. And in that case, you better go dig a well. So you can try and imagine if, like, your local Department of Water and Power basically said, hey, you know, we're, we're trying to get you power. 60 40 it's going to clear um otherwise you know man uh start looking in uh how to build your own generator or you know getting some gasoline because uh, that's all you're going to get the same principle is being applied and uh as the population again uh started to grow uh in like 1850 the number of public water supplies because at this point we've done away with the private process or trying to do it because it's failing it's not manageable from a bureaucratic standpoint. 
from just a hierarchical standpoint, from an integrated standpoint of delivering service and feedback and actual engineering and new ideas all, all at the same time. Um, so in 1850, the number of public water supplies uh, had gone up to 83. So we're, all, we're already kind of starting to do this a lot on the East Coast. And um, after the Civil War, there were 136. Beginning of the 20th century, uh, it was over 3,000. Now it's you know, tens of thousands. It, it's not even really countable in a lot of ways. Uh, just kind of the huge size of the population in the United States and sort of the ebb and flow of our population. Um, and in late 1800s, I had mentioned they really started to try and uh, treat water properly without chemicals. So they use things like slow sand filtration. And then uh, they would use like uh, what's called rapid filtration, which you'd run the water really quickly under high pressure through chemical coagulation. Uh, but everyone hated that. It was getting people sick. So eventually they kind of found other ways of doing it. Um, and the only one of the few times Congress actually had to step in because it was killing people uh, and said, we're not going to say what clean drinking water actually is, so we don't want to get involved. But we are going to say that you cannot introduce, uh, transmiss, or uh, spread communicable disease from foreign countries or from state to state. What does that really mean? Well, it's, this is Congress's way of saying... Uh, we don't really want to get involved. We don't want to define these things. Uh, there was a kind of a political philosophical standpoint in the United States still at the time that Congress wouldn't do this sort of stuff. They also just didn't really care. And, uh, but they, they, you know, they recognized it was a problem and they didn't want to get voted out in the next election. So they waited until 1912 to actually try and put in a water regulation. These early water regulations were just you can't pour chemicals in the water or you have to. You can only use them at a certain volume at certain times if you're going to treat it with chemical regulation. Not defining what clean water is or how we're going to get it or setting up a national infrastructure to deliver it to people. They had no they just didn't care. Uh, however, they. Did try and stop interstate water delivery, which is a problem that gets solved in the 20th century, and the Hoover Dam is sort of emblematic of that. Even well into the early 20th century, uh, con you know, there's still this belief in the United States, and this goes across for all kinds of infrastructure. Things like the Erie Canal and, and, and other uh, sort of token pieces of infrastructure you learn about are aberrations, and believe me, there is like a huge amount of political uh, back, backlash and fighting over just these very simple things because they it involved moving resources from areas that it was disputed what that resource belonged to, does it belong to a certain state or not, or moving resources across state lines. Uh, it was seen as Congress had no role in doing that. It was, uh, some people argued it was illegal and that it could be ignored. Uh, state governors would attempt to use it as sort of phony political um, uh, legality when they needed to, to ignore certain things because they basically say, well, you know, there's no constitutional um, 
there's no constitutional basis for your complaints regarding my continued support of water transference to your state from my state because, quite frankly, uh, Congress never should have done that in the first place, and uh, I don't care what you think. And so Congress had no real way of remediating these disputes. Now, obviously, that's not true. Water is sort of managed at a very much a federal level in a lot of ways, and states either work together uh, willingly or sometimes forced to work together. Uh, but at the time, you could kind of get away with that. Uh, and it wasn't until like uh, 1914 when they actually created the first public health service drinking water and, and standards. And uh, that's when, okay, well, well, we will say, not with clean, again, we're not saying what clean drinking water is, but we will say that uh, the bacteria in the water, that's kind of a problem. And you should try, although we won't, there was no enforcement, you should try and remove X amount of bacteria from the water per gallon of water delivered. Um, but this wasn't solving many problems for people, and this was not solving any problems in the American West. Back out in the American West, uh, the, the debate over water was much different. It was more, how do I even get it in the first place? Not uh, we have a lot of it. We just don't know how to dispose of it properly or how to filter it properly. Um, but the political situation had devolved into, well, uh, the East Coast is, is getting all this focus and we have uh, no focus on water supplies on our own front. So therefore, uh, we need to start developing our own solutions. We had this kind of hearkening back to early colonial America where the states in the West started to try and approach uh, large infrastructure projects on their own because they the, there was no real support from Congress uh, or from the federal government. But the federal government uh, did something very clever. The turn of the century, they created the Bureau of Land Reclamation. And also uh, the Army Corps of Engineers became much more prominent and uh, sort of changed its, its overall hierarchical nature and had grown much more in size. And both of these... Uh, entities, which would end up later sparring several times uh, over both ownership and responsibility of certain projects and how certain projects could even be engineered. Uh, both of these entities kind of quickly killed many early state-focused attempts at infrastructure out west. Uh, being in the progressive era, we talked about this progressive era episode, there was a real con concentration, or there was a real attempt at concentrating power at a national front. Uh, in, in the national government, in D.C., in uh, national institutions, in sort of also oligarchical control, uh, there were a lot of very rich and powerful people in the country who wanted to oversee the country as a whole, not in sort of disparate regions or single states. They wanted uh, multi-state solutions, mostly for their own purposes. So the infrastructure and the attempts at infra uh, and all the attempts at infrastructure were killed. In some cases, there were the work had already been done. And the Bureau of Land Reclamation uh, would use things like conservationism, which was also a big political component of progressive era, to force states to destroy early work that they had performed. Or the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers would come in, basically say. Um, this is not up to engineering standards. 
this is clearly not U.S. Army Corps of Engineering standards. And according to this federal law from 1868, all projects therein regarding this nature have to follow our standards. And of course, they would cite laws that were basically put out by the federal government in the Reconstruction era when the feds were rebuilding the South. Uh, they would find various ways of basically killing projects or be becoming part of the project. Um, and they would dispatch work out to private contractors. There was still a lot of private chartering going on because it was ridiculous to assume they could do this all on their own for the rapidly growing Western population. And so by the 1940s, working with the federal government and working with these sort of very heavily uh, centralized institutions like Bureau of Land, Reclama Land Reclamation, uh, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and so on, uh, waterborne illnesses had basically evaporated, so to speak. Uh, waterborne illnesses in public water had gone away. And most of the American population for the first time had public works associated with their water delivery. This is something that was very unique to the post-war era. It was at this point when the majority of both the rural, semi-rural, and urban populace, regardless of the region they were in, uh, were dependent on public, publicly owned water filtration, water delivery, pipes, service, uh, sort of maintenance and feedback, all of it. They were paying taxes, they were paying their utility, you know, public utility companies in order to maintain this infrastructure. Um, and there were still some private, unquote, private utilities, um, but their relationship with the American government had shifted so much towards sort of um, permanent monopolization. A good example of this, uh, and one that has killed probably many people at this point and keeps getting away with it, is Pacific Gas and Electric. Uh, I think in theory, Pacific Gas and Electric is a is a corporation um, and it has a CEO, it has a board. What? Oh, it's a utility. Right. But in theory, it, it, it's, a, it's a company with a CEO, a board of directors, and so on. Um, but it's on the stock market and, and, and everything. And uh, PG&E is basically an arm of the California state government. It has been for a very long time. Um, and it explains, uh, if anyone's familiar with like the Hinckley case, Hinckley, California case, where uh, they, they actually were using, uh, they were not disposing of water properly. But in this case, it wasn't like water with shit in it. Or human refuse. It was water with hexachromium six, which is a uh, nuclear development site treatment chemical. Uh, they were letting that seep into the local groundwater that they technically owned and administered to population of this town. Uh, and they killed a bunch of people in the town. They gave the whole town cancer. And uh, uh, actually, the town is basically depopulated at this point because the environmental damage is so bad. Have you ever seen the movie um, Aaron Brockovich? That's what this is about. More recently, PG&E has also murdered an entire town of people in Paradise, California, with a uh, a malfunctioning power pole that they had known was malfunctioning for about 
I think allegedly six months and they waited until fire season to basically consider shutting it off. Uh, didn't do it in time, and then an entire town of people was uh, destroyed and killed. Uh, but anyways, PG, you know, the whole point of PG&E is basically, you know, in theory, we charter out these services to this company, and they perform this work for us. But so much of the utility of kind of public or private utility operations are overseen by by both the federal government and their associated state government uh, that they act as arms of the state increasingly. And they're sort of, they've merged into one. Uh, and this was a very weird trend for the United States to go down because for a long time it was private and it was exclusively very public. Uh, local municipalities, mostly cities, were doing this totally on their own and they were setting the model for well, your, your municipality or your city or your town, whatever sort of uh, uh, incorpor- incorporated public entity you are, it just happens to include as well, you pay as part of your local taxes uh, for these services. Um, for whatever reason, and I think most of it was done out of desire for you know greater uh, control, but also so certain people could kind of reap private benefits uh, we went down this pseudo public private path. And that's sort of the model that we have for public utilities or just utilities in general now in this country, Uh, especially for water. uh, That is basically the only model you can go. It's very difficult now. It's actually probably impossible given a lot of the legislation and regulation that came out in the 1970s uh, and the 1980s regarding the use of water, regarding what kind, what water is what clean water is what's uh how you can actually dispose of water it's virtually impossible now uh unless you do this maybe on your own land uh, and even then you might run into problems if you tell anyone about it but uh to deliver water as just a as a startup or a company you know with enough investment it simply could not be done uh, there's simply no more room for that anymore the only uh work that's done privately is maybe the manufacturing uh, and some level of maintenance of uh, the, the tools and materials that utilities use to actually deliver services. But as we've seen, especially over the last 15, 20 years, there has not been a lot of that going on because in most cities and in most of the country, we're still using water mains, indoor plumbing, and uh, water filtration methodology from the late 1880s or the early 1900s. Uh, Chicago is a good example where uh, that their uh, the former kind of psychopath mayor Rahm Emanuel he did this once where he held up like a lead pipe and he said something to the effect of this pipe was installed in 1890 or 1890 something and it was in it was in use until three days ago and. It was like corroded and, I mean, you know, and it could have been lying about that specific pipe, but we know, and the uh, the American Society of Civil Engineers does a report card every year on this topic. It's very well known that much of the water infrastructure in this country has not actually been created anew or maintained in a very long time. It's extremely old. <laughs> I think it got like a C plus, if I remember correctly, on the waterways specifically. Overall, the country got a D. 
And if you just casually just drive around the United States, I mean, you could see the infrastructure in the state at which it's in and compare it to, I mean, if you travel at all, you'll, you can see the rising nations have much more modern, much more advanced, much more intact infrastructure, you know, let alone being advanced in any form. I mean, basically just the original design has corroded to the point where it's, it's deteriorated and so it's not being properly maintained. Uh, the costs for bringing things up uh, to just the, the sort of original specifications are estimated to be in the around $4 trillion mark. Uh, and that, that money is just not being spent on this type of thing. And Trump ran on a partial infrastructure revitalization program, and none of that has happened. Obama actually did, too. Uh, he didn't run on it, but after the financial crisis, which happened really in the early part of his term, he made all these promises about addressing infrastructure decline, and that really didn't happen either. Uh, there was a few uh, roads paved in sort of very key donor cities uh, in uh, you know, California and New York, probably, but there was very little there was, done. I remember there was a lot of like goofy stuff he did. Like there was a small town and God, I can't remember the, st- I can't remember the state, uh, like a, a middle American state. I had an airport that maybe got like, two or three uh, planes leaving out of it or coming in yeah. a day at the most. Yeah. And they spent a ton of money to pave this, uh, basically create a new runway and they remember they didn't there was an interview with um the air like one of the guys who actually worked at the airport and he was, he was so quizzical about it i don't like we get almost no traffic here he's like i i have two jobs outside of this because this doesn't there's not enough activity for this it's for the press and, release and the photo op right and and it happened to be uh it was a whole I think it was like conservative treehouse or whatever the fuck. They did a whole long thing on it, and it basically was a con. It was a contracting company that was connected to his uh, 2008 campaign. They'd given a ton of money, and they got all these odd jobs in the stimulus package, like doing stuff like that out in the middle of nowhere because it what killed a, two stones one goal. You know, it, it gave. It, it was a kickback to this company that gave me a ton of money in the campaign, and it, I looked like a good guy. And not like an elitist black asshole uh, who cares about the middle American landscape. And I want to help these people out in the middle of nowhere and give them new airport runways or new traffic lights and all that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, this is also where these infrastructure grades come from. Like, they're all from the American Society of Civil Engineers. Like, they're working for the guys that get the contracts right. to yeah. fix the infrastructure. Yeah, they're, so, not, they're not at all unbiased. And you have, we've, I've always, I think we've, we've mentioned that before, Carter, on a couple of different shows, various reasons. But you have to keep in mind that these guys are saying these things because they want the work. This is their job. This is their life. Just go do this now. It's objective that American infrastructure is failing. It's everyone can see it around them. It's very analogous to everyday life. Uh, just looking at the raw numbers of water main breaks, of cracked water levees, of uh, falling bridges, of uh, ruined roads, of lack of uh, consistent electricity supply to this day in like nor- in 
burgeoning metro areas, uh, it's simply not scaling up. In a lot of areas, when you drive through certain parts, I remember I'd drive through Central California or when I was in um, part of the Midwest not too long ago, the roads were terrible, just awful. You know, almost there, you know, in some areas, they're, they're becoming, they're hitting the point of being uh, undrivable. Mid- Midwest has got the worst infrastructure I've seen, honestly. Yeah. I mean, it, obviously, they get hard winters, but the economic uh, implosion in the Rust Belt obviously has had its effect, and you just don't see the reinvestment happening, and it's it's pretty sad. You know, one of the issues is like when you have outlying suburbs that depopulate, theoretically, you're still responsible for maintaining the infrastructure everywhere between you know here and there. So if you have half the population and half the property taxes, but you're still doing things that are not allocated on a per house or per capita basis, like running water mains, electricity, repaving roads, very rapidly you find yourself overextended. A huge chunk of uh, our reservoirs, for example, or our dams, uh, have actually been in need of repair for a couple decades. Uh, most recently, we saw this with the Oroville Dam, near disaster. It wasn't quite a disaster. It almost didn't kill 75,000 people, although it came very close. Uh, many of our, our reservoirs, the underlying foundations of the reservoir uh, or these dams are just failing. Uh, the concrete uh, is, is basically giving way. A lot of them were constructed stupidly constructed on like top of sand or limestone uh and there is a process by which the weight of the the concrete and metal pushing down on that limestone and the constant presence of concentrated water on the limestone as well will eventually just destroy the limestone underneath the dam you know like there was, there's huge, there's all kinds of areas where, you know, not only is the infrastructure failing because we're not building more of it or we're not maintaining it because there's no money, but a lot of it was done in, you know, these expansionist eras of America. And a lot of it was done under the assumption, well, hey, like this isn't the best engineering idea, but obviously things are going swell right now. It is the 1940s, and we're building this this new dam out here. I'm sure that in 30 years, it'll be even better. And they'll be able to come back and maybe look at this thing again and build it stronger and, and reevaluate it. Of course, none of that ever happened because everything was sort of downhill from there. And that was sort of the end. 1960s is really the end of the American uh, infrastructure spree. Yeah, to be fair, and I, I'm not being specific on this remark in the time period at least, but to me there is a sense that if you take a look at like the Brooklyn Bridge versus one of the more modern bridges that is in God knows where in America where they're still actually building things like this um, new, you you can basically see, and I'll give the example actually that just occurred to me, but you can see that they really did pack in a lot of material. I mean, it's almost like their engineering principle and general civil engineering 
Uh, safety factor, I believe, is uh, three times the expected load on things. Uh, and if you look at the Brooklyn Bridge, it just looks like it's like 10 times because there's just so much iron and, and rock and uh, mortar just shoved into this uh, thing that really doesn't have a very high capacity for traffic. Uh, and then you look at the, the newer uh, designs. So the example I'm, I just occurred to me was in all the way across the country in San Francisco. Uh, and I mentioned this in my book because the statistics are so startling. Uh, the eastern span of the San Francisco Bay Bridge was replaced in entirety, uh, first of all. So that, that in and of itself is kind of ridiculous. Uh, and they did um, they did this new design, which is called a cable-stayed bridge, which is using this central mast where it kind of looks like a, a sail almost, and they have uh, these cables that come down from a central point and then hold up the entire span of the bridge as opposed to the older uh, approach, like the Brooklyn Bridge, which is a suspension bridge where you have these uh, multiple towers uh, as opposed to one, and then they have... Uh, you know, everybody's seen it, but basically it's just the the big loops uh, of cable going uh, up and down. And then underneath those, there's just vertical, uh, vertical cables. And it's a much simpler design and it's considered old, I guess. And so California and whoever else was involved in it wanted to do something that was new and they called it a signature bridge. But what I want, what I wanted to point out was that first of all, they built it in China. Okay. They couldn't even do it in the United States anymore. Second of all, it cost, um, something like $6 billion and the estimate was probably a sixth of that. And it took like five times as long as the projected time it was supposed to take. And so it was like from uh, two years to, to 10 years. Uh, it was, it was just this ongoing ridiculousness of construction overruns and turns out at the end of all of that, uh, the dumb thing has rusty bolts in it. And the thing is, is not holding up to what they designed it to do. And so they're having to go in and fix all that crap. And it's just like, it really occurred to me when that sort of thing was put in because the original Bay Bridge was built in like two years uh, and it looks better uh, in my opinion. And the, the particular Eastern span, if you want to get technical, was was this truss system, which actually looked kind of bad, but they could have just done what they did on the, the Western side and it would look great. Uh, they didn't do that. Uh, and they want to do something new. But my point is it got more expensive, it got slower, and it got worse, in my opinion. Uh, it's, just a, it's just a general testament to the degradation of the skill set and capability of the country as a whole. There's, um, there's, a, there's a citation here, and I'd like to say that uh, uh, the, in the Journal for Water Resource Management, they state that water, everything to do with water, so everything, and including bridges, internal uh, navigatable waterways for uh, good transportation or, or, or human transportation, uh, and drinking water systems, all of it is the most capitally intent, capital intensive utility business uh, in the United States and in the world. It's also the utility which we happen to pay, on average, the least wasn't always the case. We used to pay a lot. People used to pay a lot for it, for decent service. Now, because it's sort of assumed as a given, ironically, uh, after sort of the, the heyday of, American, of Americanism, early half of the 
of the uh, 20th century had fizzled out, you sort of descend to the mean, which is that if it's for everyone, it's just sort of a given. Obviously, it's going to decline. People are not going to do not pay as much. They just assume it's just part of your, your taxes or just this little payment you give and you get your water and they either turn it on or they turn it off. And that's it. Um, and a lot of this has to do with how complex uh, the 20th century, the evolution of the 20th century uh, water system, which in, in the United States became sort of the standard across the world for how you would deliver water. So it has basically three main channels. Uh, you have a pumping station, a treatment facility, and distribution system. So a pumping station, uh, these came about because we had a huge amount of breakthroughs in hydraulics, hydraulic engineering, in steam engineering, and just in sort of uh, the underlying physics of water pressure or just pressure in general. Um, were all kind of came about, uh, again, a lot of it came about in uh, England and some of it in France, some of it in the United States uh, in the 19th century, especially later half of the 19th century, because a lot of these were sort of um, uh, after effects of the early Industrial Revolution. We had to sort of figure a lot of that out on the fly to just get the Industrial Revolution going. And then afterwards, people, you know, uh, there was a lot of capitally intensive search that went into trying to understand the underlying physics and utilization of these very basic principles of water pressure and uh, water maintenance, and uh, obviously hydraulics. Uh, so we developed these pumping, started developing these pumping stations across the country. It served two purposes. So we would actually get water from the source. You actually suck it out of the ground. You suck it out of an aquifer. You suck it out of a body of water. Uh, that body, that body of water could also be uh, a reservoir. And the only way to build more reservoirs effectively is to either uh, find areas where uh, the internal topography of the area makes sense and you do some work, you build small dams or small blockage areas and you keep water there, or obviously you just build a dam, you dam a river. That becomes your sort of pseudo reservoir for both power consumption um, and for just water storage, because you're holding back huge amounts of water flowing from snowmelt, rain, and, and all kinds of uh, tributary runoff. You can just sort of suck that out and then treat it off-site. And this is done in large scale and small, small scale across the country. Uh, sometimes when you're driving on the freeway, you can see these uh, in certain areas of the country. Um, they look like tiny dams, and they're basically there for maintaining reservoirs above the primary topography to find small plateaus or areas on the hills to build these. And that's basically there to collect small snow melt runoff, rain runoff, or just rain. And it serves as a small uh, point of water management for the area so that it's not flowing down into people's uh, suburban, like exurban homes. Um, and they can kind of have a slightly locally managed water supply. That's the only way you can really keep water together. And this was a, a very neat invention uh, that the West, specifically the United States, had to figure out. Uh, how do we maintain large bodies of water to begin with? Because there, there is an element of the, the vicissitudes of nature itself. 
uh, don't allow us to have a consistent source of water or it's not consistently manageable. Shit happens. Riverbeds fall, fall apart all the time. A fucking beaver, bam, uh, beaver dam can block an entire uh, small river for a whole year if you're unlucky. All, all kinds of things can happen. Uh, so we need to maintain a centralized source for this water for this designated area, for this designated distribution system. Uh, obviously, we'd have to transport the water from a treatment facility, and we kind of talked about a lot of the ways that uh, treatment is done. There are some ways that don't involve chemicals, and I think in the modern sense, it, uh, there's a lot of hydraulics that go into it, and they basically squeeze things out of water, and they, they run it through several um, uh, filtration systems that filter out particulates, filter out material, uh, and sort of leave you with what is basically the underlying water. Um, boiling was another one. Heat treatment was, uh, was one way of performing this. Uh, obviously, chemicals are still used in our water supply. Fluoride is a chemical after all. Uh, and that's done in certain areas in order to kind of maintain consistency because some sources of water uh, might not have great systems of water runoff or, wa or wastewater management. So there is uh, an element of, uh, we haven't, in this region, we have not perfected our wastewater management system. And uh, thus we need to treat it with chemicals because there's a very small, but uh, certainly uh, legally liable chance that uh, you could have human waste particulate in your water. So obviously our filtration methods don't always get that out. And one of the things that the United States really pioneered too is that these systems have to be working all the time. In order to guarantee the way of life that we've developed and the expectations that we have, the expectation is that if I'm awake at 3 a.m., because I'm thirsty, I can go downstairs, turn on my, uh, if I need to turn on my faucet, get my Brita water filter out of, the, out of the fridge, pour some water from the faucet into the water filter, wait a couple minutes for it to percolate through its filtration system, and then drink that water. I can also do the same thing at 11, uh, 11 a.m., at, at 2 p.m., at the next day, I can do that the next week, and I can do that the next year. Uh, the assumption is that I can do this whenever I want with whatever quantity of, of water I want. I have an you know, in theory, unlimited gallons of water I can I can just take from that faucet or from my hose or from whatever. So in order to make this possible, there had to have been a lot of current inventions, engineering work done on um, obviously power management. How do you actually power these uh, pumping facilities? Because they don't. We're not talking about gravity anymore. This is not just a manipulation of gravity. This is you know, real hydraulic engineering that obviously requires a power source to run effectively. So um, the way that infrastructure really developed in the United States, and it sucks that this Petrovsky character couldn't figure that out, is that we had to develop a lot of these uh, various sources of infrastructure congruently. Uh, and over the same uh, course of time to actually continue to deliver on each of them independently. Infrastructure is a cohesive process. Everything from the internal uh, waterway 
that it, with freight that is carrying um, your carrying, let's say, liquefied natural gas from a location that came out of uh, South Dakota, which required all kinds of power generation on its own and its own water filtration for both water that's utilized in the natural gas creation process or the fat fracking process and also drinking water. All these things have feedback loops. Feedback loops, uh, they all have had to have been well-designed and well-thought-out in congruence with each other. There's no major construction project, for example, where you can go one at a time. We're going to do electrical one at a time. Next year, we're going to do water. We're going to do, uh, you know, I guess now internet is basically utility. Um, and then we're going to do quality inspection control after that. For each of them individually, no. The expectation of sort of the modern American society is that all these things work together, and the only way to make them work together is that we had to develop them. And this was some. This is the most American thing about a lot of this modern water infrastructure, is that the United States is really the first country to sit down, pioneer this, and figure out how do we get water the same consistency to Rochester that we get to New York City. You know, I've heard in Europe that the, the water delivery system is not very advanced compared to some of the stuff we're talking about now in America. Uh, that may have fluctuated, obviously, over time in terms of the, the gap between them. Uh, but I don't know why this is. I would just speculate to the fact that the United States was relatively new and it just had a, a blank sheet of paper and they could plan this stuff out rather than having to go through hundreds, if not thousands of years of history and road networks and infrastructure that's already built up and very difficult to navigate. Right. That's, that's part of it. And part of it is a cultural phenomenon. Um, there's a cultural phenomenon to Americans uh, that I think, I think the three of us in particular emblemized. All three of us are basically engineers. We build things in our own time. We build things for work. We deliver on projects. We have to think about things as a systemic whole. Uh, it's a very American thing to do. It's always been an American thing to do to problem solve systemically. And uh, I think a large part of it, too, is that uh, the American population constraints were hitting crisis levels. It's hard to imagine now, and for whatever reason, it's not brought up as much in your standard history. But if you immerse yourself in it just slightly, what life was like in the 1880s in one of these cities, it was abysmal. Every day, it smelled like shit. Water wasn't trustworthy. Power generation wasn't trustworthy. He would fucking electrocute people all the time and kill them or leave them horribly burned and scarred. He will catch on fire because they're still using kerosene to light the streets. Uh, there's there's horse literal horse shit everywhere, everywhere, just all over the place. Getting into the pipes, getting into the sewers, getting on the street, getting into people's houses. It was terrible. It was just terrible, and everyone hated it. It would have, you know, these 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 pioneerings in all of these fields would have probably happened faster, I think, if more of the American population was concentrated in the cities. And you, around the time that a lot of this innovation starts to be done in the United States, not imported from parts of Europe, specifically England, is around the time of the flip, the flip 
between rural and urban divide in the United States in the beginning of the 20th century. That is basically the crisis. That was the critical mass. And that's when the United States sought to solve these problems cohesively. That's when you have the rise of sort of the modern scientific corporation. DuPont is a great example of this. Early of the American 20th century, DuPont is pioneering all kinds of things, all kinds of realms of engineering. Carnegie is doing a massive amount of work in steel infrastructure and road maintenance. Um, Rockefeller is utilizing not only his ability to deliver oil and, and gas and deliver heat across huge regions from certain areas, basically you know, the same thing we do with water, but then turning a lot of that knowledge and spinning off other corporate you know, companies and, and, and divisions of his companies to deliver water and to come up with, with water maintenance and, and pipe delivery, just pipe engineering in of itself. Uh, all of this was done because I think the, the oligarchical class of the country and, the, and the, the country in of itself was basically fed up and decided sort of, uh, sort of uh, organically almost in some ways to tackle this problem and guarantee a better standard of living. And winning the second, winning the Second World War and really coming out the only place that wasn't destroyed um basically fueled that fire and now the world was our oyster we had all these resources we made all this money and then splurged we built up a ton of dams we built our national highway system we built power generation all over the place we you know really started to invest in this idea of natural gas we really put uh, a source of heat a source of communication with our you know that's a whole other discussion uh, our communication lines our phone system uh, a source of water, a source of uh, news, and a source of reliable food in every single house in the United States, regardless of where they were. Could be in the hills of Montana. You could be in South Boston. You got the same deal. You got those basic utilities, as they were thought of, those basic services. Those were we're going to do everything in our power to guarantee them. They weren't going to be bad when we got them to you. Your house wasn't going to explode, although this does still happen. Uh, when gas was delivered to it, oil was delivered to it, uh, the water was going to be usable. The food was not going to be rotten. You were going to be able to have a reliable, consistent source of communication with other people and, and, and your area certainly with your, your local public services, like your police force, your firefighters, all of that uh, was basically the, the promise and, and what was given to the United States, uh, why we developed what we did. Uh, a lot of that now is, is not taken. Just, it's interesting that I think a lot of people these days are just sort of uh, have decided uh, through, I think, their own analogous experiences and just as a general malaise that uh, those things can't be granted. And there are real examples of that. Our water infrastructure is flat out failing. Um, there are basically every year now, we have several major storms that hit uh, our Gulf Coast, our South, even our Northeast, uh, and sometimes even in the Midwest that uh, destroy local wastewater management. Absolutely destroy it. 
And then there's a whole crisis surrounding uh, the use of the tap water, use of water itself. No one's even really sure because the, our, our water management, our water delivery systems have become so complex. They require several teams of engineers to even diagnose a problem. Part of that's a scaling issue. I don't think that uh, our modern water, our modern water distribution system uh, was ever intended up to this extent for places like Houston, places like New York City, for Atlanta, uh, for Miami, for Boston, uh, Los Angeles, never intended to service millions of people with a hugely densely packed population and very high amounts of consumption and expectations of consumption. Um, so the infrastructure is not only failing because it's old and no one has cared to updated lot of cases, which goes to a, a, a funding issue. There is a real issue of how do you actually spend money on infrastructure? It used to be understood that uh, states were the first prior priority and that uh, or states saw it as their first priority. And then the federal government would do large scale projects, interstate projects, would help maintain certain critical pieces of infrastructure, would lend money for subsidies or, or would help out in certain cases. Um, if there was a failure, for example, to the Army Corps of Engineers comes in, just like if there's um, if there's a, uh, like one of the Detroit automakers, like you would think that, okay, if like they, they have a bad car, maybe it's the state of Michigan. Well, really it's the uh, NTSB, the national, uh, I have that right, Hank, the, National Public Transport Safety Board, something like that. Um, yeah, it, yeah, National Transportation Safety Bureau. Yeah, uh, it's really their responsibility. So, like when GM had that ignition key defect, they were the ones that really saw that they got charged at the federal level. So that there's this kind of wider understanding that uh, not just infrastructure, but in general now, uh, and since the, especially the post war era. And states are supposed to tackle these problems first unless there's certain circumstances where the feds need to come in or ask to come in and either lend help or give money. Uh, but states increasingly see no interest in uh, creating new infrastructure. Uh, a lot of states in this country are experiencing population or population stagnation. Their tax base is shrinking. Um, there's a jobs problem. A lot, not a lot of people are working. Uh, I know the unemployment rate looks like it's okay, but the amount of people out of the workforce is insane. Um, they're not able to, and in some cases, they just flat out can't fund it. At best, they can try and maintain it. At best, they can replace parts of it. Uh, at best, they could try and create a new uh, piece of infrastructure, whatever it is, a water distribution system, new road for you know a 100-mile stretch, whatever you want to say, but a new piece of a highway, sound barriers on a highway, all that kind of thing. Um, if their community, if that area of the state is dying, or if the state is dying in general, um, they'll deliver on parts of it and they'll promise the rest of it, you know, over like a 30 year period. They'll take out 30 year bonds to try and accomplish it. And that's basically their way of pacifying, you know, intermediary uh, political concerns from the population about lack of infrastructure. But we're not going to really see that efflorescence of infrastructure work again in America, 
probably for the foreseeable future um, for a couple reasons now. One, civil engineering is not sexy and it's not attracting a lot of great talent. There's a lot of very talented Americans who are coming out of college, coming out of training. Uh, they're not going towards construction, they're not civil engineering, they're not large project management. Um, they've, they're focused on a couple areas, scientific research, uh, computer science, and information technology industry. Uh, a lot of them go to Wall Street. Uh, a lot of them uh, basically go work <clears throat> for defense contractors as well. Uh, the US, if there's anyone that could probably solve the infrastructure problem in the United States, it would be the US military. They have done that in the past, as we'll get into next uh, next episode with their relationship to the dam and, and other dam work. Um, but another issue we have is that uh, population of the country is stagnating in a lot of areas. That just happens to also be where the infrastructure is failing. Um, so if your population is stagnating or it's dying, you can't really expect that the local infrastructure is going to be shiny and brand new anytime soon because as far as your state government is concerned and as far as your municipal and county governments are concerned, uh, the area is no longer high priority. It's just simply that. Thirdly, uh, I really don't think that we have a lot of ability to solve scaling problems. The Hoover Dam is uh, in pieces of infrastructure like it, large bridges, the national highway system, all the water treatment facilities that were created in the late 1880s and early 1900s. They were done for a population that was assumed to be in a couple million for certain per area, let's say, or per city. And that was the assumption is how, okay, it really can't grow beyond that, or they assumed that when it did grow beyond that, um, the next generation or generations down the line would be able to solve it. They did. They would come up with a solution. But there has not been a real national pressure to solve this problem. Everyone talks about infrastructure. It is a huge part of the American political dialogue. But there is no real pressure on uh, the political scene, on our, our corporate scene, to solve this issue. It's done in piecemeal, if at all. Uh, because I really think that increasingly the American population has hit a very, very troubling point where they're willing to accept a lower standard of living. They've begrudgingly already accepted. Whereas the population at the turn of the century in particular really truly believed that the only way uh, to go was forward, that the only way, the only thing you could ever do was improve and build a better life. Uh, increasingly, the cultural malaise and the demographic malaise in this country really means that we are not going to see large-scale, really well-done and, and innovative engineering solutions to the next infrastructure challenges. You will see some pretty innovative and smart ideas to solve the problems of our maybe largest cities. Although if, if, the, if the way that the certain cities in California are going, particularly the problems of San Francisco and Los Angeles have unfolded, uh, like for example, the LA Metro system apparently won't even be completed until 2040 
because Caltrans uh, wait takes didn't it I didn't I see the uh, construction of that in 1994 when Speed came out Keanu Reeves and Sandra yeah. Bullock yeah so it's only been 25 years I mean no big deal right yep yep uh, part of that you know there's a fun little fact here uh, Caltrans which is this uh, mafia of Armenians and um, and other ethnics and boomers has uh, basically made it impossible to do anything in the state. And uh, they require about a billion dollars per mile of track for the metro in L.A. County. How's a Hyperloop shaping up? You know, another thing we're probably going to see is uh, this country declines is a is a huge swath of snake oil salesmen, like uh, the man behind Hyperloop, who shall remain nameless. But there are no real ideas, I think, to solve this right now, uh, solve transportation, solve water delivery. Um, we talk to people, and increasingly people, well, people have always kind of said this, but increasingly people say, my tap water isn't. I don't trust my drinking. People are buying filters in mass. I think that there's a real understanding. Not only is this stuff failing, no one cares. The population is just sort of accepted it. The local government is either scratching their heads and kicking the can down the road, or doesn't care. And there is no real idea of a future America. The Hoover Dam, as we will talk about, represents, was a, a future of America. It was done at the time in a futuristic style. It was this, that was believed to be what the future aesthetic of the country would look like. Because it was assumed, this is where we're going. This is what we want to be. We want to be the people that engage in this newly thought of arch, arc gravity dam construction, which had been attempted and killed a ton of people before. And we want to be the people that use millions of pounds of concrete, millions of tons of concrete and steel. And we want to construct this huge obstacle to the most one of the most dangerous and unpredictable rivers on the planet. We want to be the people to figure this out, and then we want to populate the whole area around it afterwards, because now we've solved this problem, and we want to enjoy the fruits of our labor. Like 147 people died in the construction of the Hoover Dam. Hundreds were, were wounded, lost arms, lost fingers, lost ears, lost legs, lost their sight, lost their tongue, lost their teeth. Horrible injuries. People lost their families, people lost their relationships, people lost contact with friends from other parts of the country. People never went back. People abandoned their whole lives to build this thing out in the desert. But people actually went and did that. Anyone today who tells you that this is going to be a risky project, it's unpredictable, this is a, using a type of, of construction methodology that is somewhat unproven and when it has been done, has killed people, but it's the only way to solve this. It's the only way we can think of solving this. If you told people that it's going to be risky, and you're going to hate your life, and you're going to be miserable, but you're going to be paid somewhat well, 
and you'll have participated in the construction of this great work that will be known the country over and celebrated. Did you get people to do that today? Probably not. That's why the Hoover Dam, everything like it, should have once-in-a-lifetime occurrences, once-in-a-country occurrences. Once countries hit this point of malaise, they've stopped caring about their past accomplishments and they see no future in new ones. There's simply not enough resources to accomplish them. That's when you know that uh, failing infrastructure and sort of the history of infrastructure isn't your biggest problem. Where are you going to get your next cup of water when things actually start to really fail and no one has any bright ideas about how to solve them? As uh, Jane Jacobs said in one of her books, dark ages ahead. <laughs>